My name is Father Gregory Pine, and I'm a Dominican Friar of the Province of St. Joseph, assigned at present at the University of Freiburg, where I am working on my doctorate. But you have probably at this point come to become accustomed to these off-campus conversations, so bi-weekly installments, where we're following up with a particular professor who's given a lecture for the Thomistic Institute, so that way we can kind of suss out some of the insights. So follow up on the principles, maybe work through some of the arguments, and then see what's entailed by what it is that they proposed. So we found that it's a good way to kind of go deeper um, from the ordinary setting of Thomistic Institute lectures uh, so that you, the listener, might profit all the more from the wisdom of those who will speak here, there, and everywhere. Uh, so today we're joined by Professor Paul Gondreau, uh, coming to us from Providence College in Rhode Island. So thanks so much for joining, uh, Professor Gondreau. Great to be with you, Father Gregory. Hey, cheers. Um, so, so many of our listeners will have listened to your lecture, which will have aired. I'm using a lot of the, the future perfect tense, which I didn't know existed in English until I studied <laughs> other languages. But that's what happens when you time travel with, you know, like podcast recordings. So alas, um, many of our listeners will have listened to your lecture from yesterday. But for those of them who have not, would you just say a word about yourself uh, and then, you know, like who you are, where you're coming from, the type of things that you're working on? Sure thing. Uh, my name is Paul Gondoro, Professor of Theology at Providence College. I've been teaching here in Rhode Island for 25 years now. Since graduate school, which is the same graduate program where you are currently, Father Gregory, I got my doctorate at uh, University of Freeburg. Incidentally, uh, I, you know, I never understood the subjunctive tense in English until I had to learn in French. <laughs> I understand how that how that goes, but but I, I did my doctorate under uh, the great Thomas scholar, Father Jean Pierre Terrell. While there, I did it on um, Christology, on Aquinas's uh, um, theology of the humanity of Christ, more specifically on Christ's human passions. And since then, I have been continuing that work. I have broadened it along more general anthropological lines. So I've published uh, quite a number of essays touching on uh, the, the moral meaning and purpose of human sexuality, moral life in general, how that bears on Christ and his humanity, on uh, Christ the man, the male Christ. Uh, that's what I'm currently, uh, projects I'm, I'm working on currently. So, and I've been involved with the Thomistic Institute for a few years now and uh, have very much enjoyed it. I really uh, uh, very much value the, the kind of students who show up for these lectures. They're just eager to learn. I do teach an introduction to Aquinas course here at Providence College, and I always like to uh, tell them, you know, that I, I encounter these students at these secular schools that would die, you know, for the opportunity they have, which is that you, they get to study Thomas Aquinas a couple days a week for a whole semester. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, I'm just saying uh, that, that uh, a lot of people out there would love to trade places with you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, that warms the cockles of my heart. Because sometimes I'm not entirely sure what's going on. I'm just reading St. Thomas Aquinas. I'm wholly convinced, but I don't know if it corresponds to the deepest desires of other people's hearts. And then I say something and people are like, holy smokes, that's awesome. And I'm like, cool, so I'm not crazy. <laughs> so I'm glad to have this evidence corroborated yet further. Um, all right, so in your lecture, you talked about uh, specifically the topic of truth and the way that you ran the argument was a kind of apologetic for the divine institution and like the divine efficacy of the church. You know, so you ran it through Christ, the church, the sacraments, and then the way in which we receive that in the here and now. So maybe one of the things that was fascinating to me was that you kind of just started into the argument. And why is this fascinating to me? Because I think a lot of people clear their throats 
um, which sometimes there's need for throat clearing, but sometimes throat clearing becomes its own science. Um, this is not to make light of epistemology or criteriology as a discipline, but a lot of people want to start first with like, well, if we're going to make claims about knowing, we have to show first that we can know or that we can know that we can know. But I just, I was struck by the fact that you didn't start with a lot of that. Um, so maybe like, uh, from whence comes your confidence that we can know the truth? Or maybe what are some ways in which you might argue dialectically that we have this capacity or that we're made for it? Well, you know, I'm convinced that, that God has wired us for this, that, that, um, you know, we're endowed with, we're endowed with a rational soul, with a mind that is ordered ultimately to truth. And we hunger for that. We yearn for that. As Aristotle says, uh, that the, the the nature of the mind is to know. We have this deep yearning to know, and um, uh, and and what's the object of knowledge? But but truth. And so deep down, you know, we live in a world that uh, you know that wants to poo poo truth, uh, if not outright deny its knowability or its existence uh, at all. Um, you know, and um, so you know that that nonetheless, despite that. I think it's what people want. It's it's what it's what people are yearning for, and you know you dance around, uh, you kind of pussyfoot, or you know you if you if you make too many overtures. Now I you know I believe firmly in engaging with the culture and dialoguing with the culture. I mean you got to meet people where they're at. Uh, at the same time, uh, you know the more one nods to that and uh, uh, pays deference to it. You know, you risk doing a disservice to the truth, I think, and to what people really are yearning for. And I mean, heck, I got I got a limited amount of time the way it is. So, you know, let's just get right to it. Let's just dive right in. But but, you know, I mean, that's how God is with us. Uh, he, he you know, he doesn't he doesn't pull a fast one over us. He doesn't try to club us over the head. And I think his preeminent spokesman, theologically, St. Thomas Aquinas, does exactly the same thing. And, um, you know, but lays it out there, lets his, lets his reader decide. I mean, this is, this is pretty evident when you read, like, Thomas Aquinas. And actually, a little, little story to tell uh, in this regard. I do teach an introduction to uh, Aquinas theology course at the undergraduate level here at Providence College. And by the end of the semester, I just kind of ask the students, I will ask them, how many of you as a person, does St. Thomas just strike you as someone you like? And nearly all of them raise their hand. I ask them to be honest. Then I'll say, how many of you really like Aquinas? Maybe one or two hands at most. Then I'll ask, how many of you don't like Aquinas? Uh, no hands, one, two hands at most. And I'll say, you know, I, I'll wager that uh, a good reason for that is that you what you've witnessed in Aquinas is someone who f respects you, who respects your mind. He's making rational arguments. He's making moral arguments. He's appealing to your mind and to your heart. He's not trying to pull a fast one over you. Uh, and he respects you. He lets you make up your own mind. He, he makes it clear uh, what he thinks the, the truth of the matter is, while at the same time giving adequate voice to you know, the opposite side. Aquinas, of course, is famous for giving giving the best voice to the to the opposing side. So, you know that that's how I like to approach these matters as well. Uh, that where God offers us Himself, and He is truth, and so in terms of intellectual inquiry and study, uh, He offers us the truth. It's up to us to respond, 
and we're wired for it, we yearn for it, we want it. Of course, we can reject it, some do reject it, but, but you know, more often than not, uh, people will, uh, if they don't respond at the outset, at least, you know, there, there's something I think deep inside that, that is, that, that is, is turned on. And, uh, and, and, you know, you kind of, the attitudes start to change, perhaps, uh, if, you know, if, if they haven't already come, uh, with, with a desire to know. I mean, these Thomistic Institute lectures, usually you do have an eager, or eager audience for them. So they're, 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 um, they're well disposed. Um, you know, they're, they're, um, they're, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're receptive. They're, they're openly receptive to, to what you have to present to them. That does make a difference as well. Uh, not always the case with my undergraduate students, for instance. Uh, but you know, it's again, you, you know, you, you're always, uh, you're, you're, uh, structuring lectures and talks in view of your audience and you want to, um, always keep that in mind and, and speak to them. So. I am reminded of a line. I'm going to butcher it, but that's never stopped me before, but it's from, uh, GK Chesterton's The Dumb Ox, where he acknowledges this kind of like epistemological or criteriological gap. And he says of St. Thomas, you know, in his work of Soccer Doctrina, that St. Thomas acknowledged the gap, built a bridge over it, and then began promptly exploring what lay on the other side, because it was infinitely more real. <laughs> She's just like, wow, savage, look at this guy go. Um, but, I, but I can understand what you mean in the sense that we often find ourselves in settings or contexts where it's like the conversation has to be subtle and nuanced in order to get off the ground or we're constantly being contradicted or called into question. It's like, dude, sometimes I just want to have a conversation where we can just deliver the goods, you know? Yeah. And I think there's something refreshing to that, albeit, you know, maybe with some rough edges, but that's okay insofar as we don't let the fear of saying something slightly wrong keep us from saying something very much true. So St. Thomas is, he just happens, yeah, well... I could say many things there, but I won't because I'm going to ask you a further question. Um, so you made mention of the fact in the lecture and then just in this last response, how folks in the 21st century sometimes prove themselves allergic to truth claims. Um, I'm not sure if this is worse than before or better than before or for, you know, if it differs than other ages of humanity. Uh, I have a friend who often quotes Michel Foucault in this regard. He says, there are no good times or bad times. There are just perilous times. So it being the case that this time is a perilous time, do you think there are particular reasons for which the 21st century or those who live in the 21st century show themselves or prove themselves allergic to truth claims? Uh, are there ways that we can make sense of this, which will help us better to address it? Yeah, well, you know, it's, 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 it's a good question. And the answer, of course, is a complicated one because so much of, uh, of, of current culture, it, it, um, it draws from the well. Uh, of modern philosophy and uh, modern philosophy, I think, has um, uh, has played a large role in this general skeptical attitude that a lot of people have towards the search for truth or even the knowability of truth. Um, but it's it's uh, you know the, the postmodern world in which we live is especially you know akin to that. Uh, I mentioned in the lecture, for instance, when it comes to religion, you know, we're all familiar with these coexist bumper stickers. And while that's in reference to religion, I think that is symbolic of the of the attitude of culture to, you know, all truth across the board that that uh, let's just um, let's be tolerant of each other uh, and and appreciate the fact that there are different views. Uh, no one is necessarily uh 
more right than another. Uh, you know, you you um, uh, you're entitled to your opinions if you want. I mean, at the same time, it's a schizophrenic world in which we live. At the same time, uh, there's an ideology which is being crammed down our throats, uh, which, um, you know, it's prevalent in academia in the United States, for instance. Uh, and, you know, if you don't if you don't go according to that orthodoxy and, and sign on to it, then you risk, you know, possibly you risk your career. Uh, you certainly uh, will fall out. Uh, and not be held in, in high esteem or in favor with um, with any academic authorities of repute, you know. But I I think deep down, um, I think it's expressive of of a deep spiritual crisis, which is you know a reluctance to surrender ourselves to something higher than ourselves, namely God, and and the truth. God is truth, and the truth sets us free, and. Um, you know, that today's secular world and, and becoming ever more secular, there is, you use the word allergic, that's this, that's, that's the word here, this allergic reaction against surrendering myself, surrendering my heart, especially when it comes to God. We know that it's not just a surrender of one's mind, it's also a surrender of one's heart. Um, because in, in doing that, it's, it's as if one is, is giving up one's own autonomy. And, and what is greater in today's culture than one's autonomy? Uh, the, where, where, where personal autonomy is, is held up in highest esteem, well, then any other, any other authority is going to be a rival to that, is, is going to be looked upon suspiciously, if not inimically, whether it's God, whether it's the church, whether it's uh, the order of nature. I mean, this is, this is a big problem that we uh, encounter in morality, you know, speaking of, of, uh, of, a, of, a, of a rule of morality grounded in, for instance, human nature. I'm, I'm referencing natural law. With God, the author of our nature, standing behind it, this becomes, you know, very difficult. But, um, yeah, so I, I think... Uh, uh, as much as it's an intellectual crisis, it's it's um, it stems from and flows from a deeper spiritual crisis, uh, which is uh, this you know um, keeping God at arms arms length, uh, and and whole, you know because I don't it's this illusion that I'm going to lose myself, I'm going to lose my you know I'm going to lose my identity, I'm going to lose my autonomy. The truth, of course, is just the opposite. Uh, those of us that have given our lives over to Christ uh, know that that uh, only in, in surrendering ourselves completely to God do we find ourselves. Only in only in uh, in and admitting that there is a truth and pursuing it are we do we find freedom? Are we set free? And do we find that our the, our deepest yearnings satisfied? Yeah. Now the point about freedom is a uh, one that's near and dear to the Freeburg School, if one can speak of a Freeburg School of Theology. But certainly, Father Surveys Pinkers, who would have still been alive when you were here, um, who passed right about when I entered the order, spoke often of freedom as a kind of adherence to the good, right? Because you are not free insofar as you have the option to do fell things or things which ultimately undermine your humanity. You're free to the degree or to the extent that you are bound up so intimately with the good that you become the type of person who cannot do otherwise, not because you lack creativity, but because why would you deflect yourself from the course of the good if you were so wholly and entirely convinced 
that your flourishing lay therein. And so, yeah, I think that when it comes to the truth, to describe the truth as the good of the intellect, I think help brings that into focus. This idea that, um, yeah, our minds will only ever be reconciled to reality insofar as they correspond to it, right? So there's no, there's no truth to be had in ideology. There's no truth to be had in uh, like strange fantasy. It's only in reconciling ourselves to the fact of what we are. It's like, okay, if I am, you know, filling the appropriate negative adjective, well, it's good to know that about myself. <laughs> because <laughs> then maybe I can work on it or maybe I can accept it or maybe I can seek healthy correction on it. But if I go about denying it, then, well, yeah, we're in a fix, right? Because there's no point of departure. Um, I'm thinking about, okay, so I'm thinking about this describing here, you know, an openness, which you um, kind of put in these terms of holding God off at arm's length, like a, an unwillingness to be open to that. And this brings in the conversation about revelation, Okay, so there are things that we can know by the inquiry of reason and there are things that we cannot know by the inquiry of reason and we need to be aided by the revelation of God. And so many of the things that you describe in the course of your talk rely upon revelation. Um, and I think, you know, like sometimes you'll hear from skeptics or critics that it's a black box claim. It can't be proved. It's the type of thing that, you know, once you give them the keys to the car, sure, they're going to drive around in it. But like, I don't give you the keys to the car. So in response to that, would you say that like, are there reasonable arguments, kind of like apologetic arguments or, you know, things of that sort, <clears throat> which help kind of break us open more to, or maybe, sh you know, kind of uh, cast in a more mm, acceptable light for the skeptical 21st century man, this, this, this idea, or not this idea, but this reality of revelation, that there could be something from beyond that addresses us in our limitations and brings us forth from it? Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, um, there, there is the human experience on a natural level of, of a kind of revelation in as much as, uh, you know, you, you tell me, you reveal certain things about yourself to me. And um, what I know about you, you're, you know, you're, you're a credible, trustworthy person. So why shouldn't I believe that? And I believe that. But that's I'm making an act of faith in doing that. So I'm now is that is that unreasonable? Oh, I don't think so. In fact, what would life be like if if none of us did that? If if you know we had to, uh, you know, speaking of G.K. Chesterton, he he um, he was noting you know the 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 human ordering to truth, uh, and this explains why it's so easy to lie because and, and to get away with it because we have a natural affinity to the truth. And, and to communicate the truth in our speech. And so imagine what life would be like if you had to be skeptical uh, of anything anyone ever told you in the course of a day. We don't do that. We, we by and large, uh, we, we just believe what people say to us, uh, even if they're total strangers. Uh, and this is, I think, what's operating here on a subconscious level is the fact that we are ordered to the truth, that we do have a natural affinity for the truth, that it, 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 uh, it more often than not comes out in our speech. And so that we uh, assume rightly that people are being honest and truthful with us. So that's all at a natural level. And, uh, you know, that, that it's perfectly reasonable. In fact, in fact, it would be, uh, it would be extreme to try to live otherwise. Unnatural, inhuman, even. Uh, so it is the same by analogy when it comes to supernatural revelation whereby God uh, reveals uh, things about himself and us to us, uh, many of which we wouldn't know if he didn't reveal this to us. Well, you know, what's unreasonable about that uh, necessarily? Especially if 
God's existence itself is reasonable. Uh, and, um, you know, this is where it's helpful, you know, when, especially if you're entering into the mind of St. Thomas, that God's, um, God's existence itself is, is not only, it's not only reasonable, it's rationally compelling <laughs> that arguments are, uh, on the side of God's existence, not against God's existence. And so if, if God, um, exists, must exist, rationally speaking, well, is it much of a stretch to uh, say that it's possible that that God uh, intervene in human history and, and human lives and reveal himself and cultivate relationship with, with human beings, uh, especially since um, God is truth. Truth must exist. Uh, otherwise, um, you know, if truth didn't exist, well, then what would be the standard of measure by which we could judge anything to be true, even a mathematical truth like two plus two equals four? Uh, you know, it would it would be nonsensical to say that that is true, uh, because if there's no standard of measure of truth, then you then it's not, then truth is nothing. Uh, but when we say two plus two equals four, then we're acknowledging even subconsciously that that that, you know, this mathematical um Proposition two plus two equals four. It participates in 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 in, tr in truth itself, in truth. So if God exists and God is truth, uh, then uh, then then what God reveals, then God is the you know is the supremely trustworthy source. If he's if he is to disclose certain things about himself uh, and um, um, to reveal himself. Now there's that. And there's also, you know, there's we can also appreciate just speaking of this apologetically from the angle of those who have claimed that they have that God's revelation has been uh, offered to them. I'm speaking specifically of, say, the prophets, you know, oracle of the Lord, uh, word of the Lord, uh, where they are they are asserting that that God has spoken to them and they are passing on now God's revealed word, or most especially to the apostles. Let's just take the apostles, for instance. Now, they claim to have witnessed uh, on an, on, uh, in an intimate way the ministry and most especially the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So, um, okay, uh, that on one level, uh, claiming that they know a person who's come back from the dead would seem crazy because there's not any other uh, historical instance where one can say, I know someone who's come back from the dead, and, and not just come back from the dead, not revive, be revived from death, but never to die again. Uh, well, then what makes you believe these apostles? Well, okay, um, there are several things that one can point to. First, uh, that if, you know, if they made this up, then they were willing to suffer torture, persecution, and death <laughs> to make up what they knew was a fabrication. St. Paul says that, you know, that Jesus appeared to, to uh, 500 of us, and he names names. You don't name names if, 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 it's, if it's concocted, if it's fabricated, because, of course, you could easily verify it then with those, with those people. You certainly don't name 500 names, you know, and... Uh, but most especially um, through the course of the history of the church, the difference in the lives that the church has made, the saints that the church has produced. Pope Benedict XVI, he, he said that the strongest argument in favor of 
God's existence and of the of the church of the church are saints. And um, how to explain this? You know how how to account for what is what is really and in, in non-existent in the ancient world before Christ? Uh, you know, hold up. Let, let's hold up the great uh, human models of the ancient world. Let's look at Rome and, and Aeneas, or uh, you know, for Homer, it's 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 uh, someone like Odysseus, uh, or you know, Hector, perhaps, what have you. These these individuals certainly on on one level they're they're great heroic human individuals, but they're not saints. <laughs> they're far from it. You know, you don't have you don't have a Mother Teresa who, you know, uh, in, I was watching a documentary a few years ago. Mother Teresa recounts the experience the first time she picked up a poor man in the streets. He was being eaten with worms, and he asked her why she was doing this to him, and he said. Because I love you. This, one, one doesn't find anything like this before Christ, really. I mean, one finds foreshadowings of it in the, in the chosen people of Israel, but not in its fullest extent, uh, in the, the sense of fullness of self-giving love, which indeed comes from Christ and comes from Christ on the cross. So, you know... Um, and and at the end of the day, Father Gregory, boy, I tell you, I, I would say, um, then what do you have without you know without God without what 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 is offered to you, uh, in if you accept divine revelation, uh, eternal life, <laughs> you know, and and um, and meaning of for suffering. Uh, a real answer to the to the most fundamental existential questions that that human beings pose. Without divine revelation, one has no real meaningful answers to those questions. You know, so you you choose, you choose. I choose a meaningful life. I choose a happy life. <laughs> All right, kudos. Well, I'm glad you did because otherwise this conversation would have well. It'd be difficult to go forward. Nah, that's not entirely true. I mean, sometimes it's exciting talking to atheists, but yeah, I think, um, yeah, insofar as you share a communion on a more profound basis, then yeah, you can go a little further in a conversation. All right, maybe to give one to the atheists, uh, which is to say we're not going to give one to the atheists, but if we were to give one to the atheists, uh, in your estimation, uh, you've probably, you know, in your studies, in your work, in your in your research, you've come across a variety of arguments against the divine institution of the church or against the possibility of revelation, like things that touch on the theme that you described in your lecture. Um, what, of those ones, can you identify one that you think to be especially powerful? Um, and then do you have a way by which of addressing it or kind of, uh, yeah, clapping back? Yeah, well, I mean... Um First of all, there's just the assumption that what can't be seen uh, isn't real or that, you know, it, I found conceptually that for atheists, this is especially true of the new, of the new atheists, that their conception of God is not, is, not, is not an intellectually coherent conception of God, or it's at least not what, it's not what St. Thomas means by God. It's not what we mean by God. Uh, they consider God to be, you know, you know, they'll, they'll make fun that, uh, we have astronauts to go up into space and looking for God, and they didn't find him there, you know? So he, he doesn't exist. Um, 
God is not one being among others, you know? God is not of this world. He is, uh, he is beyond this world. And he is the source of being itself. He's not one being. He is, he is being. So there's, there is no proper proportionality between the world and God. And, of course, only with such a being can created being or finite being uh, be accounted for. Uh, can we can we understand it? So, um, you know, I, I find that uh, you know a first a first um, move that one has to make is to make sure that we understand the same thing when we say the word God, and uh, that if if we just mean that you know God is just this uh, old guy with a beard who you know stands around the corner and um, tells us what to do, shouts commandments at us, or is just the biggest, strongest guy in the block, you know? He's the one with the uh, nuclear missiles. Uh, even St. Augustine in the Confessions acknowledges that he labored for a long time under the illusion that God had a body, that God was a body. And it wasn't until he was freed of that illusion that you know, his mind literally, ah, it, 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 you know, the skies opened, and, and he had a revelation. And uh, it, it, he finally he got the God the God thing, so that that's that's the the more conceptual issue I would say, and just the the uh, the Enlightenment view that all of reality is re- is flattened out, reduced to material reality, uh, reality that you can um, visibly perceive and measure. Uh, you know, so to just to uh, address that, why why um, no one really believes that? No one really lives their lives, uh, you know, uh, in accordance with such a strict reductionist view of reality. Okay, there's that, and then there's then there's the problem of evil, um, the existential problem of evil, and uh, and the assumption that um, that. If there is the existence of evil, then God cannot exist. Um, so you know, I mean, there are issues with there. It's 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 certainly it's a false assumption. Um, but you know, it's it's a uh, you know one thing I like to point out is that that objection against God's existence on the basis of the existence of evil in itself is a fruit of the biblical revelation. <laughs> I mean, it's only the Bible that that tells us that God is moral. That God is holy, the Holy One, and uh, and God is merciful. So the way the objection goes, if God is loving and merciful, then how, how you know why would He, uh, how could He allow for evil? Well, you only speak of God as loving and merciful on account of the biblical witness. In other words, this was not an issue for the ancient world outside the Bible. You know, the Greeks and the Romans were not objecting to God's existence uh, on account of the existence of evil. Uh, in fact. Evil was uh, to be attributed to the gods. If you if you're speaking of the of the natural religions of the ancient world, the, the gods themselves were responsible for evil. That's you know this is how to understand it. So it already it's a biblical framework to to pose the problem is itself biblically inspired, flowing from the biblical witness. All right, okay, but but uh, but in any case, that you know, the, the the Bible has has profound answers to that question, and it um, and it reaches a high point in the Old Testament with the Book of Job, and then of course in the New Testament with um, with the death and resurrection of Jesus Himself. Um, 
as you turn to, I mean, I think of, you know, Prima Par's question to Article 3 on the existence of God when St. Thomas says for his arguments against the existence of God, well, you know, you don't need this hypothesis on account of the fact that you have a science which is sufficient and then also evil. How do you square that with the God whom you're about to describe in these glowing terms? Um, but it's, it's fascinating, like in the 20th century, it seems that the way that this evil argument is picked up, a lot of people focus on the evil that is wrought by Christians. Um, so this notion like, You've been behind the Inquisition and the Crusades and all kinds of things besides. Uh, I think it's C.S. Lewis who says in Mere Christianity that the greatest argument against Christianity is Christians. Um, and t today I was having a conversation with a religious sister who pertains to the Schoenstatt community. She's a really excellent uh, woman, very wise. And she told she was just recounting this little parable where she says, you know, a man, a kind of like a, a merchant, um, was talking to a Christian priest. And this merchant happened to be a, a producer of soap. And they were like sitting in the town square looking at all of the, the mess of humanity that passed by. And the merchant said something to the effect of like, you've had, you know, centuries and centuries. And, and what have you done? What have you Christians done to improve the state of man? You know, they're just the same, you know, kind of filthy, uh, unreformed, like animals that they always were. And so like the Christian, the priest, you know, like looks and sees in the foreground this, this little boy who's playing in the mud. Um, and he sees, he says, and you, you know, producer of soap after hundreds and hundreds of years, you haven't, you know, you haven't yet achieved the goal of making man clean. Like, look at this young child. And so, um, the merchant claps back and says like, well, you know, soap can't make clean unless it's applied. And he says, ah, and there you have the response. Christianity can't make good unless it's lived. Um, and so it's fascinating that like, People will often use arguments against the faith when it's not so much a matter of the thing itself as the living of the thing. <laughs> I think it's, again, Chesterton who says that it's not that Christianity has been uh, found wanting. It's, it's been that it's found difficult and then left untried, or that That's it's been right, tried yeah. and found wanting. Something it's like been that, found yeah. difficult yeah. and left untried. Yeah. All right, so we have time for, for one more question. Um, and I thought, yeah, maybe just... you. you you touched on this at the end of your lecture, and it's a really fascinating topic that I think a lot of our listeners are asking themselves. Uh, but there seems to be this tension in the church between, on the one hand, you know, extra ecclesiam nulla salus. Outside of the church, there is no salvation. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, like when you read, you referenced um, uh, considerably the documents of the Second Vatican Council. I'm thinking here of Lumen Gentium, when you get into the teens, where we're talking about membership or incorporation. And the document acknowledges elements of grace and salvation outside of the visible church, which pertain to, you know, the Catholicity of the church and have a kind of tendency towards the church. So on the one hand, we're saying outside of the church, there is no salvation. And then on the other hand, we're saying that there are elements of grace and salvation outside the church, which have a kind of dynamism towards the church. So when people are thinking about the question of salvation, when they're worrying about, you know, all of those whom they know and love who have died, perhaps without the sacraments or on their way to the faith or maybe in a momentary break with the faith, like what, what are some principles or some arguments that you set forth in response to that? Yeah, it's, this is really um, important, especially in today's culture where so many people do consider themselves spiritual, but not religious, or they aren't affiliated with any religion in particular, certainly not with the Christian faith that, um, that uh, outside the church, no salvation. Well, uh, well this is this is to say the same as outside of Christ, there is no salvation. Um, Christ is the sole unique mediator uh, between man and God. He is our sole savior. But um, and and Christ continues to save the world through the church by His will and by His institution. Uh, in Saint Thomas, uh, you know, this is where I love Saint Thomas saying that 
the reason God does this, he, certainly he doesn't have to continue to save the world through the instrumentality of the church. Composed of sinners who give great scandal through their lifestyles more often than not, uh, it's in order to ennoble man, St. Thomas says. Uh, in order to, to give man a share in the dignity that's proper to him, he makes human beings to be instruments of salvation themselves, but instruments of salvation. Okay, but at the same time, Christ is not limited by the church. He's not confined to the church. He's not confined to the sacraments. Uh, that, that the power of God, the power of Christ is, is infinite. And uh, the the you know the a, 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 a profound fundamental uh, Catholic principle that is at play here is that the grace of Christ can be mysteriously present in anyone's life, no matter no matter what they're professing, no matter how it appears on the outside. Uh, you might even have an atheist, but who knows? You know, maybe that that atheist has. Uh, is of uh, invincible goodwill. Um, and so invincible ignorance, so they're not at fault, perhaps. Uh, only God can read the human mind and heart. Only he can know when that's the case. Uh, but they are of fundamental goodwill. Uh, and one really, I would argue, cannot be a fundamental goodwill without the grace of Christ uh, because of the power of sin and the, the, um, the grip that sin holds on our hearts. Uh, to be a person of fundamental goodwill means that, in essence, one one is one is committed to the good. One is committed to a good greater than my own good, my own private good. And I think one can only do that with uh, the grace of Christ. So we must always hope uh, that that uh, in no matter what um, disposition or. Um, uh, say, conceptual framework uh, a person might end one's life in, uh, one never knows. And uh, and one never knows how God was at work or perhaps present in that person's life. Um, even in, you know, in, even in the case of suicide, one doesn't know what, what, you know, what went through that person's mind and heart to lead them uh, to that point. But at the end of the day, we know that, that God's causality is greater than Adam's causality, you know, uh, that 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 uh, Christ's redemptive power is stronger than human sin, and uh, and Christ's mercy is is uh, uh, you know the God wants to save us. He you know uh, he desires the salvation of all, as Saint Paul says in one Timothy two five. He desires everyone to be saved, and he's made it as easy as possible to be saved, to profess faith in the Lord Jesus and be baptized. Uh, but we we look at it wrongly if we think that that becomes then. Uh, an obstacle to a person's salvation if they haven't experienced that. Um, that uh, it's, it's not to make it difficult, you know, it's, it's, it's not to, to set up a, a roadblock to salvation, but to make it as easy as possible. So, um, yeah, so that, that uh, the grace of Christ uh, can be operative in, in any person's life. And at the end of the day, um, you know, it, it, ref it, it requires us to refrain from passing judgment on a person. Uh, you know, uh, only God can do that. Uh, of course, we can, we can pass judgment on the externalities and recognize that, you know, there are objective deficiencies here. Uh, insofar as one is not Catholic, there is uh, an objective deficiency. Uh, one has all the means of salvation available to, to oneself in the Catholic faith. So if one is not Catholic, one has 
Well, partial means then, or the possibility of partial means, and where there's partial means, there's the possibility of salvation. Basta così, right? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Full stop. Grazie mille. No, that's great. That's wonderful. That's super helpful. And those are great principles for us to, uh, you know, kind of take hold of and then suss out in future conversations as we go forth, you know, thinking about this particular issue, which is a vexing one. Um, all right. So thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for uh, investing more in this lecture than one ordinarily might. Um, if folks want to follow up with you, you know, maybe particular books or particular articles, particular projects that you're currently involved in, are there places to which you might direct our attention? Uh, sure. Um, yeah, the uh, um, I, I've published a lot of articles in Novet Vedra and in the Thomist, uh, but they can certainly su- um, send me an email, pcgondro at gmail.com. I don't have a website or I don't have a Twitter handle e- either, but uh, certainly uh, I would invite them to send me an email. I'm, I will have a book coming out, a collection of my essays on touching on human sexuality in various respects uh, that will be coming out by Emmaus. Um, public um, pub, um, what's it, MAS um, but that'll that'll be uh, that shortcoming I'm I haven't supplied the essays yet but it, it's it's it'll be coming out soon so. perfect hey congratulations on that that's great um, all right so that's all we have for you with this installment of off-campus conversations we now have a name for these bi-weekly installments so you can just yeah, you can cite that. Bingo, bingo. Uh, if you haven't yet, please do subscribe to the Thomistic Institute podcast wherever you consume your content, whether that be on YouTube or on your favorite podcast app. And then look at ThomisticInstitute.org for upcoming events. Uh, so lectures on campus, conferences, intellectual retreats at Alia Huyus Modi, as St. Thomas Aquinas would say. And for those of you who aren't weird people, uh, that means and other things besides or other things of the same sort. So thanks so much for listening. Uh, know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us. And we'll look forward to chatting with you next time on the Thomistic Institute podcast.